Layered Insight is the industry's first embedded security approach for containers. Trusted by Global 1000 Enterprises to secure their containerized applications, it's the only solution that requires no root privileges, has zero dependency on the underlying infrastructure, and is fully portable across any container environment. Unified DevOps and SecOps, enabling the rapid development of containerized applications without worrying about security. To learn more, please visit layeredinsight.com forward slash ASW. Rapid7 powers the practice of SecOps. Using shared data, analytics, and automated workflows, SecOps unites IT, DevOps, and security teams to make security an outcome of innovation. Rapid7 combines technology, expertise, and advocacy to drive vulnerability management, application security, incident detection, and log management for more than 7,000 organizations worldwide. Power up your SecOps practice with a free trial at rapid7.com forward slash security weekly. Hard-coded credentials can be trouble, but not as much trouble as a vulnerable DevOps environment. If you want protection without the hassle of security slowing you down, CyberArk, the number one provider in privilege access security, has the solution for you. With CyberArk Conjure, developers can easily secure secrets across any DevOps toolchain or platform, whether your application runs in the cloud or on-premises. Eliminate the headaches of managing secrets and try Conjure open source for free with no strings attached. Visit conjure.org forward slash ASW to get started today. Signal Sciences is the industry's first web protection platform that works in any cloud, any container, any platform as a service, and any modern application architecture. The Signal Sciences web protection platform can be deployed in next generation WAF, RAS, or reverse proxy modes, giving customers ultimate flexibility and coverage. Protect your web applications with Signal Sciences web protection platform. Signal Sciences, protecting applications, connecting teams. For more information, check them out at signalsciences.com forward slash PSW. Welcome back, everyone, to Application Security Weekly. This is the news for the week of May the 20th. Still with us, James Wickett from Signal Sciences. James, glad to have you here for the news section this week. All right, right on. And uh, of course, Paul Asadorian here in the hot seat in studio. So, Paul, uh, we're going to kick it off with, uh, first, you have Nest uh, thermostats, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. No, uh, they have not, a, in my, not in my house or in my studio. No. <laughs> no. Really? If you need to hack Nest thermostats, they're on other people's networks. <laughs> <laughs> duly noted, duly noted. Well, Paul, that so I'm curious if you were actually network. affected by this. Apparently, they had a, an outage for a couple of hours uh, where basically you couldn't connect to the device uh, remotely with you know your, your phone or what have you. It was um, rough, dude. But- like I had to get up and change the temperature on my thermostat. Like It was really rough. Like the, Sometimes that walk can be as much as like five or six feet. To walk to my thermostat, it was rough, dude. I, I think I'm better we, now, though. We will rebuild, yeah. uh, as it were. <laughs> Especially in my office, like the thermostat's right behind my desk, and I do have a nest in the in the office. Sometimes I'll be actually on my phone rather than getting up. It's really bad. <laughs> like standing up behind me, yeah, it's bad. Man, it's tough. It's hard on the back and the knees. Ugh, it's just, yeah, it's a, it's a tough life. But um, what I thought was really interesting about the situation was, you know, first of all, it showed the, the quote unquote inconvenience of uh, IoT devices when outages on a, a kind of a cloud scale happen. But it also showed kind of resilience in design, right? Because the devices were all still usable. People weren't locked out of their houses. Uh, you know, it wasn't getting incredibly hot. And so in people's houses, like, you know, for James, who lives in, in Texas. So, um, I thought that that was kind of a, a neat little bit to design, right? So designing it so that it fails uh, elegantly. I mean, it's still failing, right? But at least it doesn't fail where 
things go badly. I don't know, uh, James. Do you have a Nest at all? Do you do you use uh, you know such IoT technologies in your home? Yeah, I do. Yeah, and uh, you know, my my got my got really hot actually, but I think it's just because my wife keeps turning it down when I'm not looking. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> duly noted. So you weren't you were the cause of the DDoS then. Your your Nest was continuing to feed back to the cloud because your wife kept going and changing it. There there we have. Yeah, it. I just kept fiddling so. with it. Yeah. <laughs> right on, right on. So, uh, unless you guys had any additional comments, I wanted to skip on to the next story. Well, and uh, we're actually working on getting someone from uh, Azure Sphere on, but I think it also kind of underscores the importance of IoT devices to have some kind of centrally managed, automatically updating uh, service. Right? That's like in Microsoft, and I've yet to read the article, but they've got like the seven different kind of design points for IoT devices. And I think that some of the ones near the top of the list are like one, it actually automatically updates firmware. And number two, it's validating that firmware in some way that it's actually the appropriate firmware from the trusted manufacturer of that device. Um, and what Microsoft is putting forth definitely addresses those issues and more, uh, which I think is really cool. Yeah, that's going to be a really cool interview when we get uh, th that rep from Microsoft, uh, or rather I should say Azure Sphere, but you know from Microsoft on the show. I think we have uh, that person on late June, early July. So that, I think so. That's I think his name's Galen, and he's a total ninja dude. Like he's been doing operating system design for a, a long time. So it's going to be a really cool interview. Yeah, that's that's going to be sick uh, to say the least. Moving on though, uh, so. Under story number two for the bugs, breaches, and more, uh, of course, you know, hackers going to hack, and uh, in this case, people are going to fail. Uh, so what ended up happening was a couple of uh, basically, quote-unquote, shadowy hackers uh, uploaded uh, some new, you know, zero-day-ridden vulnerabilities uh, as a malicious PDF into what I can only guess is VirusTotal. And uh, two, uh, two people from, or actually, excuse me, one person from uh, ESET ended up discovering uh, both an Adobe and a Microsoft uh, zero day as part of that uh, that PDF file and then reported it and got two CVEs out of it. Did either of you catch this story at all this week? I know it's kind of been flying a little bit under the radar with other things going on. No, I think that's really cool, actually. Yeah, so it's, if you think about it, right? So they upload it to VirusTotal, nobody catches it because you know, it's a zero day, so it's not detectable yet. Um, but uh, uh, in this case, it was... Uh, Slovak antivirus vendor ESET, uh, basically someone over there, uh, Anton Cherapanov, I'm probably butchering Anton's name, but uh, ended up basically discovering that there were two zero days, uh, one CVE 2018-4990 affecting Adobe's Acrobat Reader, and then uh, CVE 2018-8120, which is uh, affecting Win32K uh, components on Windows. Um, so basically, this was uh, kind of a pre-built malicious PDF without a payload, uh, that they were just checking to see if the vulnerabilities were detected uh, before they actually ended up completing the exploit chain and then uh, from there delivering out malware to you know probably phishing campaigns, right? So it's interesting to me that they didn't know that they had a zero day on their hands. And it makes me wonder if uh, these were zero days that were found by perhaps more talented security researchers sold off as part of an exploit toolkit out to uh, this, you know, kind of malicious group. And then that group was like, oh, yeah, we're going to build this thing and make sure it works and tested it. And then just like, oh, yeah, is it going to get detected and effectively killed two zero days in the process? I just thought that that was hilarious. Any more comments from you guys? No, let's move on to Google Groups. Do people still use Google Groups? 
You know, I, I don't know. But in this case, Jerry Gamblin uh, posted a brief uh, little article and a test actually for this on his uh, website. So jerrygamblin.com. Uh, so Jerry works over at Kenna as a researcher. I forget what his formal title is, quite frankly. But Jerry, uh, please feel free to write in and, and let us know. Hoodie at securityweekly.com. Uh, we can correct that for you. But he basically found that uh, Google, Google Groups doesn't do a very good job of actually securing itself uh, and has some really ambiguous instructions. Uh, so he built a, just a brief test, which you know has uh, on the website in the wiki link itself, to check for Google Group Forum uh, leakage. So yeah, that was uh, that was interesting because if you're using Google and you expect it to be secure by default, well, you might want to go check that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's story number three under bugs, breaches, and more. I think, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, as James mentioned earlier, that Slack is probably more popular, especially with developers yeah. for communication. Yeah. yeah. Well, that or almost anything else, right? So if it's not <laughs> Slack, it's Discord. If it's not Discord, it's, you know, mm-hmm. something other than Google Groups. But, you know, as, uh, as, as James and I discussed earlier uh, before the show, there are a lot of organizations that are still very much behind in the adoption process for... Uh, any uh, new technologies, whether it's, you know, Google domains for their domain registrars or, um, you know, just the Google suite of, of tools. So it wouldn't surprise me that there are probably companies still in Google groups. I don't know, James, did you happen to take a look at this at all? Do, do you guys, heaven forbid, do you guys use Google groups? <laughs> no, no, we're, we're a, definitely a Slack shop. Uh, but yeah, I think you, you see the the more, you know, forward uh, moving like in, in like Slack or, you know, if maybe hip chat if you're still into that kind of thing. Um but but yeah, I mean, legacy technology is uh, is all around us, right? And uh, uh, I remember, you know, how we, you know we, how we always process like, oh, not that stuff that is like 10, 15 years ago, but it's like people still use that. So uh, here we are today. Well, and I think that stuff kind of grows organically, right? And it can be hard to change once it's been embedded in your culture. So if you are a developer that's been working in a place, you know, people have been there 20 years, like the way we communicated was always this. And it's that's embedded in the culture, whereas, you know, newer organizations like here, we have two developers. So it's easy for me to walk up and go, I think we should do this, guys. And we'll go, yeah, let's do that. That's great. But when you've got a thousand developers, some of which have been working there for a really long time, it can be hard to adopt new technology, not just for technology purposes, but for culture purposes as well. And heaven, heaven forbid that uh, compliance would come in and say like, oh, now you will always use IRC because, you know, that's what you always used. Right, (laughs) right. You know, sometimes we institutionalize uh, uh, kind of our practices uh, when we don't even mean to. Yeah, yeah, and that that in and of itself uh, can can be problematic, especially when it's like, yeah, we we've tested this for security, we know it's secure, therefore we're just going to stay with it, and we're afraid to move on when that just might not be the right right process. But um, speaking of of you know moving on, as it were, uh, I wanted to cover story number one under the if you build it, they will come section, which is how Alphabet, in this case, which is, you know, the parent company of Google, is is planning to stop uh, election kind of malfeasance this year. Uh, specifically, one of the, the children companies under Alphabet called Jigsaw has a project called Project Shield. And I wonder if they got that from, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Uh, but what they're basically doing is they're going to be routing any traffic uh, for those parties that opt in through Project Shield, which is effectively just Google's networks, uh, to check for you know malicious or malformed traffic in terms of DDoS traffic or otherwise, and uh, and from there just kind of forward on all good traffic. Um, 
I have some privacy concerns around this a little bit, but at the same time, I'm glad that large companies are stepping up and offering these services to you know election officials and election organizations. Because as they cite, uh, last year there was some election-related system outages in the Netherlands due to DDoS, and, and so I can definitely foresee this being a case here in the midterm elections. Um, James, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, I was worried that they were going to use the Nest uh, devices to kind of like do the DDoS. <laughs> so I'm yeah. glad that this is not the case. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you always worry about privacy, especially whenever like these, uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, other entities are stepping in. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm the same as you, I could go either way on this, but, uh, uh, it is, it is somewhat concerning. What about you, Paul? I know that, um, you, you've had a lot of thoughts and feedback on government and regulation and, and what have you, but in light of recent events with, you know, uh, potential election hacking. I don't even know if potential is the right term for this anymore, but subsequent uh, considerations on election hacking, this seems like a good first step, maybe. Well, I think, uh, and Doug White and I were talking about this, and, uh, you know, Doug's a little closer to uh, politics and such, right? Uh, You know, especially being here locally. He worked a lot with law enforcement, so his background's been a little closer to that than mine. He said, you know, it's kind of like there's a social media campaign for everyone who's running for election. So I think a lot of the, uh, you know, information or, or maybe FUD being spread about election hacking is a lot of it comes down to like everyone who's running for office, even if it's a small, like even a local town, likely has some kind of resources that's helping them get their message out to influence voters. Now, that can be kind of shady once we get all the way up to the U.S. presidential election and there's other political powers in other uh, you know, countries that could potentially influence the election outside of you know, that campaign. But all this stuff is going on. So that's one thing that I think is kind of overblown. Now, as far as online voting and protecting that, absolutely, we, we need to do that uh, and protect our voting machines and, and have security of the actual devices and of any of the, the data transmissions which is a totally different, uh, you know, ball game, and kind of scary when we see how easy it is for attackers to uh, influence and or break in and steal things from enterprises or other organizations. You know, how do we protect that election, knowing that in today's day and age, there are nation states that are going to try and, and, and hack the voting process. And, and what was interesting about this is, in this case, they did cite in the article that. They do, of course, uh, have to look at some of the metadata to confirm if it is like an attempted DDoS, for example. Uh, So they are actually looking at some of that traffic as it's being passed through their network. But to that end, they do cite that they expire that data, quote unquote, very, very quickly. Now, we all know how fast computers are today. So even if it's expired very, very quickly, it doesn't mean that you can't read it, you can't store it and keep it forever uh, somewhere else in some other format. But I think that this is probably a good first step. I know that Google is also offering something uh, as an initiative called Protect Your Election. So that's basically getting Google's advanced protection program, uh, which has you know physical security keys, uh, as well as, of course, other third-party uh, security implementations for things like Gmail inboxes and Google Drive, et cetera. So it sounds like Google is basically stepping up where perhaps Facebook uh, fell on its face in terms of acting faithfully to protect the U.S. and other elections around the world. Uh, in the democratic process by protecting not only the individuals, but of course, uh, the you know systems, transmit of data and so forth, which I thought that was kind of cool. Any last comments or thoughts on this uh, from either of you before we jump onto another story? No. Cool. How about All that? right. <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Next. Yeah, I'm good. Next. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so another one that I thought was kind of interesting as well, 
um, was story number two under the If You Build It section, which is uh, it's a Medium article talking about how there are a lot of projects uh, that are being depended upon by things like Webpack, Browser Sync, and Babel uh, in the Node.js ecosystem that are just ripe for takeover effectively. So um, it's more or less talking about the fact that the Node.js ecosystem is is going to hell effectively. Wait, what did you say? Babel what now? Hold on, back up. What? <laughs> Webpack, Browser Sync, and Babel. Okay, so what, those is, are, what is those that? Are effective, uh, so those are, for, for lack of nuance here, right? I'm going to simplify it. They effectively bundle or they're bundling systems for all of your web technologies. So uh, you, you bundle up all of your uh, your you know web application into a Webpack format that makes it easier to uh, quickly download and leverage your website. So for example, on attackdriven.io, I use Webpack to build my site so that when I go and deploy it, uh, it with Nginx as the, the server that's being you know sitting in front of it, it's optimized, right? So it's deduplicating imports, it's uh, minifying all of the different code that's in there, and so forth. And so, of course, those packaging systems uh, rely on other software that's now inside of the NPM, uh, you know, ecosystem or the node ecosystem. So it's, so, like a, it's like a container inside your container. Sure. Because you, you like containers you, so much that you put a container inside your container to package your web app. Sure, we we can we can go with that for now. It's uh, it. that is a, a, a totally bastardization of the idea, but sure, we'll <laughs> we'll go with that. I'm channeling um, Exhibit, all right. <laughs> so so Exhibit A, uh, Paul, Paul's containing containers. Um, so I don't know. I, I thought it was uh, it was interesting as an article because yeah, Node as an ecosystem is kind of well. I mean, it's kind of like the modern DevOps movement, right? It's it's YOLO ops or YOLO dev, where people just build things and throw it up as an open source repository, and suddenly you have problems. Wait, so um, it's like PHP? Yeah, <laughs> don't go there. Don't yeah. go there. That's not, that's not a not a bad example. Is that better um, than my exhibit <laughs> example? Yes. Okay. Yeah, actually, yes. This is close. We're we're getting okay. closer. <laughs> um, and so. What I found uh, kind of poignant about the article is, is they say that all it takes is for one single maintainer to wait until their uh, you know, dependency package that's now bundled into bundling systems like Webpack, et cetera, which basically every developer is using. Once they kind of hit a certain threshold of you know, enough dependence on their, their actual piece of software that they've written, they could just as easily switch out uh, that code for a malicious payload Mm-hmm. be more or less undetected. And then if people download or update uh, those you know, packaging systems at this point, suddenly they're vulnerable to uh, whatever, you know, what was dropped into that code base, um, which is then deployed, well, let's face it, almost everywhere with modern you know, Angular or React or other um, frameworks, right? So I thought this was, this was basically calling out that we are ripe for a forest fire when it comes to vulnerabilities and exploits and, and malicious code being put into the node ecosystem. And all it really takes is for one person to light a match and everything will just go up in flames. I don't know, James, you write open source software. What are your thoughts here? 
Yeah, I think this can extend to all sorts of uh, types of languages, and I, you know, I'm sure it's not it's not really uh, specific just to Node, but you could easily, and I think the article called this out, right? It's like you could write a function like is odd or is even, something that's you know you could just easily just do in code. But if you're a new developer and you're not really sure, and you're just getting started, or maybe you come from a front end and you're just you know, like, how do I put all this all these bits together? And you maybe you go to Stack Overflow and you say, how do I tell if a number is odd in Node? Uh, and here's an answer. It's like inherit the you know is odd package or whatever right a couple thousand people start doing that then then you could uh, update your your dependency to be whatever it is that you would want to also uh, piggyback on top of all that other code as well so yeah it's it's, it's a problem but it's a problem that we face across uh, industries I, I remember seeing an article uh, six months or a year ago where it was like set color and it was like to a hex color right and it's like had standard you know like red and it turned it into a, a value and um, and it, it was sort of just saying like a lot of stuff that's already native to the application and uh, uh, th that you can already do inside the language, people were putting as packages that, that would that could get absorbed there. Uh, it's dangerous. Uh, how do you fix it? I mean, this is where, you know, code reviews are, are important. Uh, being able to publish a bill of materials of like what actually am I bundling into my application, uh, doing some sort of uh, source uh, or static uh, code analysis of, of that as well. Um, that we, you know, we talked about this earlier, the DevSecOps report, but inside of that, uh, they, they mentioned that, uh, only 30, let's see, I think I wrote something down here, 38% of people that were, filled out this survey, which they're like forward leaning DevOps folks, right? Uh, only 38% of them actually publish a bill of materials with their software. So I think we are, uh, you know, right for, right for, uh, some problems here, um, just by the very nature of development and as people kind of get on, you know, get, uh, involved into it, um, that's that's the nature of it. Well, it's a similar problem from IoT, right? Is we're not yeah. necessarily validating the firmware, which is like the whole operating system, file system, and kernel, and all that stuff. Now we've got to validate individual packages, and how do we know that it's coming from that maintainer? How do we know something wasn't slipped into that code that wasn't meant by the maintainer? And the other thing that I'm really concerned about, we talked about last week, the week before, is how do I know if that uh, project that I'm including, it hasn't been abandoned. So I'm not getting updates. Therefore, I'm never seeing if there is some kind of vulnerability in it. Maybe someone's found it, but there's no one to report it to, even if you did find it. And then how do you know someone hasn't taken it over and is slipping code in? Like, to me, this is one of the, I think, least talked about issues that we have in in DevOps and security today is how do we validate all these different components? And as we've gone down this DevOps path, we have a lot more tools and libraries that we're working with today than I feel like we did 10 years ago and no validation process that has worked its way into, you know, organizations that are doing DevOps or any kind of development. Yeah. Open source really uh, kind of functions out of the goodness of people and of, of uh, and checks and balances there. And so that whole, like, yeah, you have a dead project. That's, Okay, that that is a bad thing, but it's that those zombie projects, right? Something that's like, oh, now it's not now it's not doing a lot of other thinking because uh, it sort of got got changed, and that's a that's a real problem. And you know, we 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 talked with White Source, uh, who came on the show, and there's an article about Black Duck, uh, who's uh, what is it? Synopsis bought them, right? And mm -hmm. you know, they of course released that that study, like, oh, we pulled our users, and everyone has this vulnerable open source software, and we're like, we get it, it fits with your narrative, and yes, it is a problem. But I also feel like there's stuff missing, you know, from that too. Like it's one thing to find published vulnerabilities. And don't get me wrong, like White Source, we interviewed and I asked them the, the question and I'm like, so like, 
vulnerability reporting in open source like it's kind of spotty like there could be a bug report over here it doesn't necessarily have a cve and they're doing a great job of finding those things but i feel like there's a lot more when you start peeling back those layers yeah i may have this open source software but how do i validate it looking for published vulnerabilities is one thing and you should do that like it's a no-brainer thing to me you should have a solution that's going to look for published yeah. vulnerabilities but it's all these other issues like we talked about with node and packages and and all these things that i, I think are going to really bite us in a big way yeah. And it makes me wonder if uh, for this situation, if it's just a matter of a hitting a tipping point, right? Right now, the vast majority of, of you know criminals out there are leveraging phishing campaigns and uh, ransomware or you know other sorts of delivered uh, exploits to end users that are probably pretty easy, right? Uh, at some point, though, what ends up happening is the author of the exploit kits is, you know, making probably a good amount of money just selling the exploit kit and never really gets their hands dirty from actually, you know, participating in the exploitation. But I imagine what will happen is at some point, one of them will get greedy. They'll realize that they can cut out the middleman entirely and just go straight to the source. And I mean, quite literally, in this case, straight to the source and then cash out uh, mm -hmm. by, by, you know, putting in some sort of library that then they can switch into a malicious package and deliver it out to development organizations, which by the way, they have the crown jewels everywhere, uh, and then just make just crazy amounts of money off of it. So I think that it will it will eventually happen, but only when it's either too rich of a target that you can't avoid it, mm -hmm. or too or something else becomes more difficult and so this becomes the next attack vector to hit a broad audience. Right. No, I agree. So and Paul, you actually mentioned there uh, under story number four, I'm not going to cover it, but we do have a, an, a link to an article that talks about a Black Duck software research uh, talking about code bases and open source uh, security vulnerabilities, bad libraries, and so forth. So they've got some interesting metrics in there. Uh, definitely go check that out if, if you have some time. The last thing I did want to cover on today's show, though, is uh, Kelly Shortridge, uh, who gave a keynote recently at a conference that I'm, I'm forgetting which conference it was exactly, but uh, also wrote a Medium article talking about security as a product. Uh, and what I found interesting about this article, to quote Kelly directly, is uh, think of security as something created through a process that provides a benefit to the market. In this case, for security as a product, it's created through a process that provides benefit to the organization. Uh, so talking a little bit about how to make it a self-service model, how to think of it as, a, you know, if the organization is secure, if uh, a, a user follows security policies, that means the organization ultimately isn't secure. But if you treat security like a product in the organization, it gives it value. And by having value, it can then also be something that you have to focus and prioritize internally from the security team on what should you do next? What value do you need to deliver to get the most uh, you know, out to your customer, the company? Uh, so I thought this was a really good article. I don't know if either of you had a chance to read through it. It's really long, I will say that, but, uh, but well worth the read. Yeah, I haven't read it uh, yet, but... Uh... I will, as I know one of the organizers for B-Sides Knoxville, so good to see good stuff coming out of that that conference, that B-Sides. And yeah, James, I, did you get a chance I, to look at any I, of this at all? I, I got a chance to read. I got about uh, halfway through before the, the call here, and uh, I really liked what, what, we were, what she's uh, saying there. Like, um, you know, and I think we understand phys physical security. We can understand that as a product, right? And that is, that is but it's a lot easier for uh, others in the organization and the business to understand kind of um, kind of the physical security type uh, of situation. Where is uh, information security? I mean, uh, she she kind of uh, does a nice juxtaposition there of uh, of how we think about. Uh, 
security in kind of almost religious type terms. And so once, you know, ISC squared or somebody says like, this is the right way to do something, we sort of uh, kind of shoulder all the burden to that. We sort of, we don't give feedback to the rest of the business. We don't, you know, we don't have people making decisions together. Uh, and security sort of does their their own security thing and, and uh, instead of really participating as a whole. And I, I think seeing security as a, as a product or as part of the product or something that can enable the business. Uh, Shannon Leitz uh, says like deliver safer, softer, uh, sooner, uh, which I really like that, that thinking, but it is about being a part of the product type experience. Awesome. So the last thing I just want to mention here is that we do have uh, one commit strip article or comic in this case, which is number five under food for thought on production or staging. You never know which with that. Thank you everyone for joining they, us this week. They could us. be the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> right they they are it is production staging um so james thank you for joining us for the new segment paul again glad to have you here as always and thank you everyone for joining us this week for another episode of application security weekly uh paul and i are going to be off next week for holiday but in the meantime remember to get commit and stay classy <laughs> <laughs>